Welcome to the Taste and See podcast, a place where we can discuss our experiences in the kingdom of God and discover how we can impact the world around us, thereby being the salt and light of the earth. Here is your host, Josh Emmerich. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Taste and See podcast. We are so glad that you are able to join us today. The Taste and See podcast is a kingdom-based podcast that exists to encourage saints, empower believers, and reach the lost with the goodness of God. Psalm 34.8 states, taste and see that the Lord is good. To taste is to experience, while to see is all about perception and discernment. It is our prayer that as we experience the kingdom of God together, that your perspective to the world around you would change. May we have a heart that pursues as well as echoes the heart of the Father. We have a special episode in store for you today. Today, we're going to be talking about racism in America, racial reconciliation, and how we can be co-laborers as well as advocates for kingdom justice. God says in the book of Amos, I hate all your show in pretense, the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your hearts. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. But I like the message translation better. I want justice, oceans of it. It is quite evident that God is a God of justice and that injustice has no place or home in his kingdom. And what is even more pressing is that this issue of justice wasn't just a concern for the God of the Old Testament. It's a concern for God today. As we discovered before in the very first episode of this season, we are the New Testament church and the Holy Spirit can move just as mightily today as he did back then. We just have to invite him to take presence in our lives. And kingdom justice can move just as mightily today as God desires. We just have to invite it to take presence in our lives. Today, I am blessed and honored to have someone who I consider to be one of my closest friends with me on the podcast today. We met in college all the way back in 2004. Can you believe it's been 17 years? But our friendship has continued far beyond our college days in central Indiana. We serve together as youth pastors of churches in New England only hours apart and have wrestled through the challenges of life together, spurring one another on in truth and love. Our guest today is Reverend Keith Spencer. Reverend Keith Spencer envisions a world where Christ followers take the lead in loving others toward their God-given potential, inspiring lasting change through the power of personal relationship as we all utilize our spiritual gifts. He's extremely passionate about racial reconciliation and has spent several years of his life empowering students and adults in multiple churches in different regions of the country. A resident of Indianapolis, he serves as a missionary specialist at Global Strategy, which is the international arm of Church of God Ministries. Keith is a 2004 graduate of Anderson University with a BA in Christian Ministries. Welcome, Keith, and I am honored to have you join us today. Thanks so much, Josh. It's great to be with you. And I can't believe it's been 17 years. Like, that's just that's just mind-boggling to me. I know, right? I, I mean, we don't look at day over 21. No, I, I think I still look the same. Yeah. <laughs> For those of you who don't know what Keith looks like, 
he's kind of got this Denzel Washington GQ model look. Oh man, I'll take that. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, you can look whatever you want if you're made in his image, right? That's true. That is very, very true. (laughs) So Keith, we're going to be talking today about this concept of kingdom justice and how it can have an impact on racism in America today and God's heart and desire for racial reconciliation, unity, and celebrating diversity. Over the course of the past decade, racial tension has been on the rise and has been a common topic found in the media. Since 2014, we have heard and witnessed the deaths of many Black individuals on the news, including Michael Brown, Walter Scott, Philando Castile, Stefan Clark, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and most recently, Dante Wright. And after I heard the news of George Floyd in 2020, I was outraged that it had happened. But once I started hearing about police brutality, white supremacy, minority suppression, and political contentment, I got annoyed, angry, and immediately closed myself off to basically any mention of suspicion of racism or injustice. As hard as it is to believe, I even remember saying to myself, he was a Black who got what he deserved. I didn't even have the decency to address him as a human being. A black was all I could muster out. It wasn't until a month or so later that God started to really get my attention regarding the issue of racism, and the Holy Spirit started to really convict me on my response to it. I read a quote by Martin Luther King Jr. that very same day that pushed me to take action. He says, The ultimate tragedy is not the oppression and cruelty by the bad people, but the silence over that by the good people. That rocked my world. So I picked up my phone, typed out a text message, and I sent this message to a friend. Brother, it took me all morning to figure out what I needed to say and how to deliver it. I hope this message resonates with love and brotherhood. First, in an act of defensiveness, I removed you as a friend on Facebook sometime back. There were things you posted that truly offended me, even though they were true, in regards to politics and racism. All this stuff you posted had legitimacy and truth, but my heart wasn't open to it. I will never know what it was like to live as a Black man in America, but your story is your story, and it is not for me to determine its validity. You own your story as I own mine. Your story holds just as much truth as mine or anyone else. I realize that the issues of systemic racism in America is not about me. It never has been. It's about the struggles and oppression that you face every single day. While I may not be responsible for the actions of white people who came before me, I am responsible for my ignorance to the racism I see unfolding around me, sometimes in my own heart through prejudices and unconscious habits. But the beauty of habits is that they can be unlearned with the teachable spirit. That being said, I would like to ask for your forgiveness for my lack of understanding in my heart and heart. I was reading through John 17 and felt the heaviness of Jesus praying that we would experience unity and that unity glorifies Jesus. For the last 34 years of my life, I have not been pursuing unity, but rather been subject to my own prejudices, opinions, and listening more to the thoughts of my white family members and friends. I have never taken the moment to sit down and intently listen to the stories and experiences of my Black friends. I am so sorry. That changes today. 
I want to hear your story. I want to listen more than speak. I want to learn with a humble heart on what I can do and how I can stand with you. I love you, brother. And I pray that reconciliation can take place not only for us, but for others as well. It starts here. It starts with me. I stand with you. Keith, I sent this text to you last year. And I mentioned that I wanted to hear your story, that I want to listen more than speak. And I want to learn with a humble heart on what I can do and how I can stand with you. So how about we get started? Yeah, let's dive in. That text message uh, that you sent, I have to say that was one of the most impactful messages I've received on this subject in quite some time, if not ever. And the reason I say that is I'm somebody that has had a number of experiences. I, I have been, um, I've served in white, all white churches where I'm like, you know, the only black individual multiple times, not just once. I've gone to majority white schools before. I've even had a white foster son for years. And so I've immersed myself in that culture intentionally in many ways because I believe in in being a bridge builder. And so I've had I've had all the conversations, I've heard all the arguments and and the disagreements. I've I've been agreed with, I've been disagreed with, I've been cursed out. <laughs> I've been sent all sorts of very derogatory racist things multiple times. And all that to say, my entire goal has just been to bring awareness to the issues that people who look like me face and what we're dealing with and how we feel. And I think one of the biggest things for someone like myself is we just want to be heard, right? Like we just want to say, we just want to say, look, this is our story. This is our experience. This is what we're dealing with and not have that dismissed. And so to receive a text message like that from you with everything that you said, because you acknowledged, you acknowledged you're wrong. You acknowledge where you've been wrong before. And you also acknowledge the reality that I've been dealing with and, and with an intent to get better. And that intent meant the world. And, and especially at the time that I received it, I think we were right in the height of, of all the stuff going on with George Floyd and just a very painful time. And so I just want to say that just receiving that message really had a deep impact on me. And I, and I appreciate it to this day and reference it to this day. So thank you very much for that. And thank you for the opportunity to be here and be part of this podcast. I'm, I'm super excited to be a part of this and just to be able to share with you and your listeners and, and, um, yeah, just dive in the conversation. This, this will be fun. Let's make this fun. The one thing I, I'll say too, is before, um, before we get going, this can often be an uncomfortable topic for a lot of people. They, you know, you bring up, <laughs> you bring up racism and I think we should all pay attention to what immediately comes across. Like as, as soon as we say we're going to talk about racism, I think we should very we should be very particular on looking within and going what what's stirring in me right now before we, the conversation even gets started. They're like, are there walls that automatically go up? Is there like a, a is there anxiety that happens? Is there defensiveness that happens? Is there is your first thought? Oh, here we go. We're going to go start talking about politics. Like I think it's very important to pay attention to all of that. And to be aware of it as the conversation gets started, because whatever walls come up probably tells you where you might need to knock them down. And so my prayer is whatever people are feeling listening to this right now, that they're they're aware of it, one, and, but two, make the, the, the conscious decision to say, whatever it is that I'm feeling right now, I'm going to set that aside 
and I'm actually going to open up my heart to what this conversation might look like without making any prejudgments about it. So that's my hope for your listeners. And uh, yeah, let's get started. Thank you so much, Keith. And again, I thank you so much for your friendship for the last 17 years and your grace and your understanding and your patience with me through this entire process. You know, religion teaches us compassion, sympathy, as well as empathy. But the reality is compassion without confrontation is like fruitless, sentimental commiseration. And it is my prayer that our conversation today would confront me and all of our listeners with the power and the conviction of the Holy Spirit to bring lasting change to our homes, churches, schools, and our communities. So the first question I want to dive into today with you, Keith, is what has your experience with racism looked like? Sure, sure. Well, I think I have to, to go back to, to my story and just give, give you a, a little bit of background on who I am and, and, and kind of how I've grown up. So I grew up in, uh, I think location matters to, to start off with. I think where, where we're from says a lot about us because not that we have to be limited to where we're from. But where we're from shapes our experiences, especially as we're growing up, right? So I grew up in Springfield, Massachusetts, first 12 years of my life in the Northeast area. I'm the youngest of four, four children. And by youngest, I mean like 16 to 18 to 20 years difference between myself and my three siblings. But my parents immigrated to the United States in the early 70s. Um, from the islands. So they're from Trinidad and Tobago, and my dad was from Barbados, my mom um, Trinidad and Tobago, my, and my dad from Barbados. And so they they immigrated to the United States. And the reason that's important is because a lot of the civil rights movement and things that were happening here in the United States that makes a huge difference in how racism is viewed and how systemic issues have carried themselves out that makes a huge it makes a huge difference to recognize that they arrived after that um, because i think that had a huge difference in my upbringing i grew up in like i said in northeast area i grew up in a very mixed neighborhood and so there was an african-american family to my right an African-American family across the street from me. But then Caddy Corner, there's a, there's a Puerto Rican family. There's a white family on the other Caddy Corner. And to my left, Native American family. And so I just grew up in a very blended neighborhood and grew up just kind of interacting and talking with everybody. I attended a primarily, well, I attended an all-Black church, but let's talk about what all-Black church means. Because you hear Black church and we automatically might think, robes and choirs and like, you know, very loud, boisterous pastors and things like that. Well, I, I grew up in a Jamaican church <laughs> my first 12 years. And so there was differences even in saying black church, but for black church, for me, it was a uh, mostly Jamaican church in Hartford, Connecticut that my dad pastored at. And so uh, we moved to Wichita, Kansas when I was in the middle of seventh grade. And so dead smack, middle of seventh grade, 12 years old, or almost 12 years old, we pick up and we moved to Wichita, Kansas. And I remember getting off the plane and I was really into aviation at that time. I remember kind of, we were, were, you know, descending to land. I'm looking out at these wheat fields and I'm like, what in the world is this place? And so we land, we get settled in and I go to school. And again, even through middle school, I was used to talking to everybody just like I did when I went outside in my neighborhood to play. And we got to middle school in Kansas. And that was probably one of the first times that I realized Life is different here than how I grew up in Massachusetts. I remember going to to school and seeing things fairly segregated, right? So you, there's 
you know, you notice the segregation more so when it's time for lunch and you go to the lunch cafeteria table and you see the groups and clicks of people that are sitting where they sit. And when you move in the middle of seventh grade, that's like the worst time in middle school to move for multiple reasons. Middle school is just an awkward phase anyway, but we get to get to school and I notice all the black kids sitting together, all the white kids sitting together. And I start naturally doing what I normally do, which is talk to talk and interact with everybody else. But what I didn't realize is that I started to notice where that was causing problems with both the the black group of kids that I tried to get to know and the white group of kids I got to know. And it's like, it's almost like they weren't as used to that happening as it, as I had witnessed in Massachusetts. I'm not trying to say that that didn't happen in Kansas, but to the degree that it happened in Massachusetts, it's a lot different. And so I remember getting called uncle Tom by some of the black kids for hanging out with some of the white kids. I remember some of the white kids kind of looking at me really funny. Like, why, why are you, why are you talking with us? You know, and, you know, and, and as you start to develop friendships and relationships with people, one of the things that I started to notice is as it got towards high school, I intentionally, again, my, we got to, we, I have to say my dad particularly was very, very passionate about racial reconciliation. And, and before I dive back into the story, um, I, ha- I have to say, I, I'm, I'm also slightly, I'm, I'm still bothered with the word racial reconciliation, even though it's a term that I use, because I don't know that you can, can you reconcile something that was never always like that was never fully put together, you know? So I haven't really gotten a new term for that, but my dad was very passionate about that. And so to the point where, you know, he even hired, we were at a all black church and I use all black church in this context and what everyone else would think of naturally. Now all at an all black church in Wichita, my dad comes in as a pastor and over time actually hired a white pastor, white associate pastor. That's how much he believed in this. And so I got a lot of that passion from him to started talking to naturally to everybody else. And so to go back into the story, as high school started happening, I started spending a lot more time hanging out with and developing French, like actual good friendships and relationships with, with a lot of my white brothers and sisters. And uh, I remember times where, you know, you go over to their house and I, there was a couple of times where I, I would get the talk like before, Hey, before you come in, my grandmother's over and I just, just want to warn you, like, she's a little racist. She might say some things or she might give you some looks. And that was probably some of my first instances of noticing like, wait a second, there's some pretty stark differences here. I remember going to my junior sophomore, junior year of high school, I started going to a church way out in the wheat fields of Andover, Kansas. And I got invited to go to, to a, a, on a mission trip to, to Mexico with this all white church and particularly the, the youth pastor there wanted me to come along as a way to introduce his youth group to, you know, someone from a different culture and different background. And so I, I jumped in, I was all about those types of experiences and, and really found some of my closest friends out of that group, but also started to experience some obvious clues that I was different. I remember being called a number of racial slurs at times. I remember being called a monkey and all sorts of different type of things. And so, you know, what do you do with that? For me, I didn't internalize it too much, but it definitely stuck out. And so fast forward to college, I go to, to Anderson, in, uh, Indiana, and out there in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, you get you get to school and you start interacting with people from all over the places and you start to notice some 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 stark differences there, too. 
I, I was joking with a friend of mine today. We were talking about the old blockbuster videos and the old family videos and things like that, and how those have gone out. So get to college and you might remember like the old blockbuster videos or family video. You might remember that one on Scatterfield. So I remember going in with a roommate of mine in college, a uh, white guy from, from Northern Indiana, and we walked into family video and, you know, I'm just doing my normal thing. Uh, you know, when you, when you're in a, when you're a black, when you're a black man in a mostly white area, you're always aware of your peripheral vision, right? So you're always scanning, you're always kind of aware of who's around, what's going on. And so I saw that I was being watched and followed the entire time, but sadly I, I was used to it. Like that just happens all the time. My roommate was watching me get profiled the entire time. And that was his first experience ever seeing that. And so I'm watching Nate and I see him like getting, his face is getting more and more red. He's getting more and more ticked off. And I remember we left the store and he looked at me and I, I was just like, what's going on, dude? And he's like, I just like, I mean, he was, he was furious. And I had, to, we had a good conversation that night. And I just told him, I was like, Hey man, I'm, I'm in rural Indiana. Like this happens to me all the time. You just get used to, you get used to it, sadly. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things that even then I had a close group of friends on my floor called the Dirty Dozen. And I was talking with a lot of them about my experiences with racism and growing up as a black man in, in America. And, and so many of them would downplay me and they were just like, oh, well, Keith, I think that's just in your head or, or Keith, no, that doesn't happen anymore. Like racism ended a long time ago. And I think the, the most frustrating, disappointing thing for me was having my own experience dismissed. And that's something that I think happens a lot of times that people consciously or subconsciously do it. They, they, you may not even realize that you're doing it, but every single time you tell somebody, oh, well, that didn't really happen or, oh, you're just playing the race card. You're downplaying somebody's experience. And over time, that hurts a lot because we all want to be validated, right? We all want our experiences. We all, we all want to feel like we're heard. And that's something that continue, continuously happened. And it's interesting. It wasn't until last year when everything started up that a couple of those guys came back to me and sent me text messages and said, Keith, we're sorry that the same thing you were trying to tell us back in 2001 or 2003, we're just now realizing like you are actually right. 20, 20 years, man, wow. 20 years. And so what, what do you think happens to a group of people when you're, when they're going through essentially what is trauma? Some people get, you know, some people have worse stories than I do. Some people have stories of being completely profiled and pulled over. Some people have stories of being called the N word multiple times or things like that. And I've had moments like that. Yeah, for sure. But like, what do you think happens to people who have that happen to a much greater degree than I've had over time? That's trauma, right? And so after years and years and years of being dismissed and years and years and years of being told, yeah, that didn't really happen. Like, how do you think you would feel at that point in time? And how do you think you'd want to respond? And so when all the things happened with George Floyd and all these riots start happening, and, and I want you to close your eyes for, for you and your listeners. I want you to like put yourself back in the situation before Fox News got a hold of everything or before CNN got a hold of everything. And just remember how you felt when all the riots started, but before you started getting upset about things being burnt down and you just saw the aftermath of, of George Floyd and you just remember seeing that, like that knee on the neck and remember thinking, no matter what I think about police and all sorts of things, that incident was wrong, clearly wrong, right? Mm -hmm. So if you can remember what you felt at that point in time, now, if, and this is where it requires some empathy and thinking outside of yourself, imagine what you would feel like 
if you've had years and years and years of racism targeted towards you and all that stuff has been built up and every single time you've been screaming for help and saying, hey, something's wrong, you've been dismissed and dismissed and dismissed and dismissed. At some point in time, you're going to snap, right? And so I think it might have been Martin Luther King that said riots are the, are the language of the unheard or something to that to that effect. And so at some point in time, the dam breaks loose. And at some point in time, you just go, you know what, if you're not listening to me, complain about the problems that are going to happen, you're going to listen now. And so you just go crazy and you just have an emotional re- response. It's, I, I've used the example before of if you've ever broken a bone. If I like Josh, if you broke your if you broke your shoulder or something like that, and I walked up and I punched you really hard in that shoulder, you're gonna, you're gonna snap. Like you're you're not gonna be thinking logically. You're not gonna be thinking, oh, I probably shouldn't yell at Keith or I probably shouldn't punch Keith. Like you're <laughs> before you can even think, your fist is already flying. Right? Mm-hmm. What do you think has happened to the black community after years and years and years and years and years of repeated racism, repeated denials of our experiences? We snapped, mm-hmm. and I'm not saying that, you know, I don't want to get into the whole, well, we can go there, but I'm saying right now, I'm not trying to go into the politics of, of writing. I'm not saying I condone writing or anything like that. I'm just trying to get people to understand that that is an emotional response to years and years of pain and trauma. And if someone like myself can understand it from someone having immigrated here, imagine if I had, if I, imagine if I, if my parents had been here through the entire civil rights age, imagine if I had to hear stories of what happened to my great, great, to my great grandparents or what happened. Imagine if I had to share stories about what happened to my grandparents, like, cause this doesn't, this, the civil rights era was not that long ago. Right. So imagine if I had to hear, hear stories about my parents getting beat by police and repeatedly, or imagine if my family was related to Emmett Till, the, the young, the young black man that, you know, got brutally dragged and killed and lynched. You're going to have even more pent up trauma and you're going to you're not going to be able to necessarily have these conversations without an adverse emotional reaction. And so I'm just trying to paint the picture for you and your listeners to understand this is the backstory behind all the stuff that happens. And every time you see an Ahmaud Arbery or Breonna Taylor or all these events, it's just hitting at a point of pain that has been long lasting and long existing. And at some point in time, the snap happens. And the snap doesn't have, it isn't pretty and it's not without a lot of thought. It's just a reaction to, to legit trauma. Thank you very much for sharing that. I listened to a Bishop T.D. Jake a couple of weeks ago and talking about this issue. And he said that he has some family members that he has never met because during the 1960s, they fled just to save their own lives. And so just hearing that experience and, you know, his experience just really paints a very realistic picture on really how much this was a life or death situation for many people of color. And you mentioned that you had some college roommates that, you know, eventually, you know, I guess you would say saw the light on this, but, you know, originally they said, you know, about your experience at family video and they're like, Keith, that doesn't really happen anymore. So what would you say to someone that says racism isn't issue in our country anymore? You know, they'd say, after all, African-Americans were given civil rights in 1964. Didn't that end the era of Jim Crow? What would you say to those individuals who would say, why are people rioting? Why is there an issue? Why are people in an uproar? Racism doesn't exist anymore. What would your response be to that? 
I think part of the problem that we have in the United States is we don't personalize issues. And what I mean by that is we, we're a hashtag culture, right? And so something happens and we throw a hashtag behind an issue or it's a hot button issue and we'll, we'll listen to we'll listen to whatever network broadcasts our side of the take the most. And we'll sit back in our situations in our own worlds from a distance and point fingers at people who live a life completely different to our own and go, you're wrong without ever having a personal conversation with anyone that that, that issue affects. Let me pivot away briefly from racism and let's talk about something else. So let's bring up a hot button. Like let's talk about the LGBTQ community, right? There's lots of opinions on that. And what I have found for myself is what makes the biggest difference for me is having somebody that I have a personal relationship with that that hot button issue directly affects. And whenever you have a personal relationship with somebody, like, like and when I say personal, I'm not talking about, oh, I know of this person or I've seen them on the news, but I'm talking somebody like you and I that have a friendship. We talk face-to-face. We actually have a friendship where we can ask each other the hard questions without fear of rejection because there's that type of closeness that exists. We live in a culture where we don't have these personal relationships. And so without these personal relationships, it gets very, very easy for us to cast a judgmental eye on whatever hot button issue that there is out there. Right. And so for me, for whatever hot button issue that exists, I can name a face that comes to mind immediately of a person that I have a close relationship with to which that issue affects. Right. So whether it be racism, whether it be LGBTQ, whether it be abortion, whether it be immigration, like all these issues, I strive to have a personal relationship with somebody who the issue affects. And that completely changes things. Right. So what I would say to people who think that that no longer exists, I would ask them to act to, to truly examine your circle. Like, who are the people that you're in a relationship with? And are you sure that the people that you're in a relationship with aren't experiencing these things? You know, and I can immediately hear, because I've had these conversations with multiple people, you know, there's some people who automatically go, well, well, you know, my, my one black friend, he, he doesn't believe this. Like he thinks, you know, Morgan Freeman said racism doesn't exist. We should stop talking about it. So see, and it's like, okay, for every group of like group of people, there's going to be one person that's going to side differently. Right. But what are the majority of people saying? Right. And if there is, if there's much more than like, a few people screaming that there's a problem that something still exists. Like, I think we should listen to them, at least listen to them, right? At least give them the, the decency to listen. So, you know, I came across a, a great post on Reddit that I wish I had pulled up in front of me, but I'm just going to try to go back to, to examine it. There's certain things that I think in our culture have become politicized. So a blanket statement real quick. If when I encourage your listeners, you or your listeners to to examine the first things that came to your mind when I mentioned racism. If your mind went to immediately to Republican or Democrat, liberal or conservative, then you've fallen victim to the trap of racism being politicized because racism is not a political issue. Racism has been politicized by both parties, but racism exists outside of politics. Uh, you know, I, I work for Global Strategy at Church of God Ministries. And so I'm, I was talking even today with a, a person from the Dominican Republic who grew up in, who spent some time in Argentina. And he was telling me of the racism that exists in Argentina. 
And I guarantee you, they're not thinking Republican or Democrat down there. They're not thinking, are you a Biden or Obama guy or a Trump guy? Like they're racist. So I bring that up just to say racism exists all over the place. And if you think about it, it's been politicized. And so what I want people to understand is that there are issues that are of a systemic nature. And the reason I mentioned the racism being politicized is because now systemic has even become a buzzword that people automatically point back to being political. It's not political. So here's a great example. This is from this Reddit post. I'm going to, I'm not doing it justice. Not I'm probably going to give it justice when I go off memory. And so imagine that you have a person that designs, that designs a hospital and this person that designs a hospital completely has a thing against people who are in wheelchairs. And so the, the entire way that they built this hospital is to have literally no regard for people who are in wheelchairs because they, for whatever reason, hate people that are in wheelchairs. So they build, they don't build uh, necessarily build elevators or stairs all over the place to try to go like to enter the building. You have to go upstairs. There's no ramps that go anyplace else. And so imagine that person dies and this hospital is a, is a very well-known hospital. It's very popular and it gets passed on to the next person. And imagine the people that it gets passed on to, they take over the hospital and they're left with this issue, but it's going to cost them millions of dollars to put in elevators and build ramps. So they just keep the stairs and so over time, with no changes to that hospital, there, there's going to continue to be discrimination against people in wheelchairs, even though the people who are now running the hospital have nothing to do with how it was built. They have nothing to do with the person who built its hatred for people who are in wheelchairs, but they're still left with the issue. And their silence or their inability to change or address those things perpetuates the issue, Right. So this is a great way of, of understanding system. When we talk about systemic issues and systemic racism, there is a system that was built that goes way back to the 1600s. And think about it. If you, if you have to, you have to kind of put yourself in a slave, slave owner mentality. If you are getting a bunch of slaves, which the whole issue with slavery, I think started off more monetarily than it did hatred for a different skin color, right? It all comes back to the almighty dollar. And so if you're bringing across a bunch of slaves and you're packing them into ships and you're bringing them over to, to certain situations, you're ripping fathers from their, from their families, husbands from their wives, uh, fathers from their children, and you're, you're bringing them over, you're, you're raping women, and you're doing all sorts of things because you don't view them as human. And those things continue to like exist and pass on. What do you think is going to happen to an entire group of people? What do you think is going to happen to their mentality as you continue to strip the manhood out of, a, out of the man? and continue to degrade the women. And this stuff happens over generations. And these people who are experiencing this have kids, and then they have to teach their kids about these things. Their kids experience these things. And so over time, you have this horrible, horrible, evil system that's existed. And over like, and it's been passed down and passed down and passed down. And so now we get to 2021, and you and I exist, and we're here. And like you said in your text to me um, last summer, yeah, you, you're not responsible for what happened before, but you're responsible with what you're left with. And this is the issue now. And so we live in a culture where we don't want to address these things because we're afraid, we're so afraid of passing on guilt to people. And so, you know, let's, let's completely whitewash history. Let's, let's not talk about the bad things that happened because we don't want our white children to feel guilty. So we're not going to talk about these things anymore. Let's paint a rosier picture that's not good enough. And all that does is continue to perpetuate the same issues because we're still left with a broken hospital with stairs and we're not looking in the building ramps for people who need them. 
And so really the encouragement to, to you and to your listeners and to everybody else is to recognize you might not be responsible for systemic racism, but systemic racism still exists. And it's now all of our jobs to fix the mess that we're left with. And fixing that mess looks like recognizing that there's a problem and starting to listen to people who've been screaming that there's a problem and humble yourself enough to ask, what can I do to help fix that issue? And so super long answer to your <laughs> simple question, but it's a very complex issue. Thank you for that. And thank you for sharing your heart on that. And that great example, I've never heard that before, but that hospital example is really good. I mean, especially being hospitals, being something that's critical to our society, you yeah. know, being cared for just as civil rights and human rights are to us. They're, they're just as essential to us in, in using that example about how we may not have been the cause of it, but are we being complacent in it? So if you could think of one or two things that you would wish those in the majority culture could know, what would they be? Yeah, that's a, that's a great, great question. Two things. Um, and I actually wasn't going to go here, but I, but this, this comes to my mind. I wish that majority culture would understand that, and this, this is going to sound obvious maybe, but, but follow me for a little bit. I wish majority culture would understand that we don't want this to be, we don't want things the way they are. We, we don't want, we we're, we're not happy with racism. Like we don't want this to be here. Like people think that we, you know, I've, and I've heard this directly, you're just playing the victim card or, you know, when it comes to issues like affirmative action, well, you're just trying to take advantage of this and that. It's like, I would love if we didn't have to deal with this stuff. Do you think I want to deal with being profiled every time I go into an all white area? I just three months ago, had a good friend of mine get ordained up in uh, Huntington, Indiana. And so I went out to Huntington, Indiana. We've been in COVID. And so there's been the pandemic. I haven't done a whole lot of traveling. So this was my first time back in small town America. And I had forgotten what small town America is like for a black guy. I pull in the town and, you know, three months ago, there's Trump flags still all over the place. I I, I don't quite get that. Like, we've come on. There's a, we had an election. Let's move on. Anyway, I, I and, and that's not a political statement. That's that, that it goes a lot deeper than politics. And we can get into that if we want. But what I forgot is as I pulled out and my friends, obviously white living in this in this all white small town, mostly white small town. I'm not going to say all white, mostly, mostly white small town. I, I get out this. I get out the car and I go inside and I forget what it's like to look over. Remember, I told you as a black man, when you are in an all white area, you're constantly scanning your peripheral because, you know, you just don't know what you're going to encounter. So you're very aware. And I, <laughs> I get out the car and you literally can see people like I saw one or two people in their house doing the whole like blind peek down, like pull the blinds down a little bit and just staring. And I was like, oh, I've forgotten what it's like. out <laughs> here." Do you literally think that I want to deal with that all the time? Like, do you think that I want to have to be concerned about what would happen to me if I get pulled over by the cops? Like, you know, I, I the cop thing I hear all the time. Well, if you would just do it, if you would just comply. Oh, really? How did that work for someone like Breonna Taylor? Uh, if you would just follow the rules, how did that work for someone like Ahmaud Aubrey? But all that to say. I wish, I really do wish majority culture would understand we don't want things this way, which is why we're screaming and yelling and saying, hey, there's a problem, fix it. We would just as soon live our lives 
I'd rather live our lives and not have to deal with these things. But we've sadly lived in a culture where by no fault of our own, we live in a culture where a hospital has been established that has stairs and no ramp. And we're still dealing with these type of issues. And so we just, we just want you to listen. That's the first thing. Uh, the second thing that I would, that I wish those majority culture would know is that we're not looking for people to just not be racist. I'm looking for people to be anti-racist. And that's a, that's a phrase that started to catch on and, and, and get more and more popular within the last year. I hadn't heard it prior to this year and I love it. Like I, I'm looking for people to not just be, oh, well, I'm not racist. Well, I, I'd like to know, are you anti-racist? And what anti-racist means is, are you willing to step in and do what you can to actively tear down the systems that you see around you? And that means something as, as, as small as, are you willing to confront Uncle David at Thanksgiving that starts saying all this racist stuff that you know happens that I'm not going to be, that I'm not going to hear because I'm not at the table? Mm. Um, are you willing to speak up and say, hey, that's not right. That's wrong. Or are you just going to let that slide because that's all, oh, that's just the way he is. I'm looking for people to be actively anti-racist because when you're actively anti-racist, that's what tears down the system. And until we get to that point, the hospital is going to exist and it's going to continue to not serve the needs of everybody that only serve the needs of some. And when you only serve the needs of some, that some starts to think subconsciously that they're better than everybody else and they're more privileged than everybody else. And slowly over time, in subtle ways that you're not consciously aware of, you start to act that way around the people who are underprivileged. And that's where the racism starts to come out. And so I need, like, I wish people in that culture, majority culture would be committed. And I'm going to speak to you because I, I believe a lot of your followers are Christ followers. <laughs> like the word, the word righteousness in, in scripture is actually mistranslated because righteousness, righteousness in scripture actually means justice. So over and over and over in the Bible, we see Jesus talking about a commitment to justice for everybody and justice, especially for those who are underprivileged. Me personally, I wish that the church would stop hiding under political associations, under the evangelical flag, so to speak. We've, we've made it all about politics. The politics have, have entered the church. Like I wish that the, the, I really wish that majority culture would get outside of politics and start living like Christ followers and recognize that we all serve a man who more than likely was not a white-haired, blue-eyed Norwegian. He was a dark-skinned brown man. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean that we focus on his skin color, but we need to, in some ways, I think majority culture might need to take some time to focus on the fact that he was a dark-skinned man because that might actually help shift perception a little bit more than, than they have. Mm-hmm. So. so speaking of the church, I think we all can come to the realization that America is as segregated as it can be on Sunday mornings. In fact, churches might be one of the biggest propagators of racist ideology in our country. And there seems to be a division in our churches on what is principle and what is practical. For example, if your principle is we value everyone, then you should be able to see that practically in the demographic makeup of your church. We don't see that. The church has a very difficult history when it comes to slavery and racism, and we have been participants, we have been complicit, and now we've often become silent. So because of that experience, we have seen a trend of young adults walking away from their Christian faith 
So what would you say to young adults who have rejected the Christian faith based on what they've seen in churches, the media, and politics who say that Christianity looks a lot like a white man's religion and they want nothing to do with it? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I saw a, a meme um, not too long ago, and it was of a person walking outside of the church and leaving and everyone inside the church going, you know, you sinner, you this and that, you backslider. And the person, like in the meme, the person turns around and says, I'm not leaving my faith. I'm leaving the church to heal. Mm. And, you know, I think we have seen this max, mass exodus of younger people leaving the church and the older saints in the church love to kind of go while they're backsliding in their faith and they're just turning away from God. And what I see is a lot of people recognizing how much the systems of the world, the racism of the world, the systemic issues of the world, the politics of the world have infiltrated the church. And the church has used that intentionally or unintentionally as a weapon that has yielded a lot of harm and danger to folks. And people are walking away going, I need time to heal. And so if you're one of those people that walked away to heal, I would encourage you in your time away from the church, take the time that you need, uh, first and foremost. Like that's something you probably, many people probably aren't used to hearing, but take the time that you need. But the other thing I would say is while you're away, spend that time looking at looking at Jesus, open scripture and ask yourself, read through the gospels, read through the evidence, the, you know, the historical evidence of who Jesus was and what he encountered and look at the people that he had the most amount of problems with and look at why he had the problems with the people that he had the problems with. They were all the church religious folks that were all about their systems and about their show and about their rules and did not do a good job of paying attention to their heart and to paying attention to loving people as Christ loves the church. And I think if you, if you do that, there's so many people who have a problem with this, with church and I get it, but most people, most, I have friends who are staunch atheists and they all tell me that Jesus guy seems cool, but I have a problem with the church. And what if the church actually truly reflected Jesus? And so you know, I think it's just, I think it's great that people take time to heal, but they need to be able to spend some time, you know, looking at who Jesus was and recognizing if you study that, I think you're going to come back to realizing Jesus and God. Yeah. That's where that should be the essence of your faith. Anyway, the church, we, we sadly have screwed up a lot of things. And let me just say to you on my experiences, I have seen more evidence of racism against me in the church than I've seen outside of the church. Mm. And it's not even close, which is sad shouldn't be that way at all. And so if you're on the other side of things where say you're not the person that walked away and healed, but you're the person that sits around going, well, why is, why, why, why did my, why did the three people who were in my church that were black walk away and leave the church over the last couple of years, ask yourself, have, are, have you been part of that problem? Have you, you know, have you, the, 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 the church is global. One side thing. I can't stand seeing American flags in churches. It bothers me. The church is global. The, the, the church is global. Our American pride and American America first nationalism doesn't should not have a place in the church at all. Politics shouldn't have a place in the church whatsoever. A lot of people, myself included, and I'm just going to be, and this is where it's going to sound political, but let me just, again, hear me out. Myself and a lot of people who look like me completely, that, that, that primarily attended white churches, evangelical churches in this country, walked away over the white evangelical church's complete embrace of Trump and that whole political thing. 
And sadly, what happens is we saw the politics of the nation and everything else that came with it infiltrate the church. And we said, you know what, we're here to worship and learn God, not to not to be bombarded with 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 nationalism. And so a lot of us, myself included, backed, backed up or walked away to heal from that. And so what are you doing to bring those people back is, would be my challenge. That's good. That's really good. I, I, I love that when you mention, you know, like even your friends who are like atheists, just just who Jesus is and, and, and what Jesus represents and far surpasses politics, far surpasses, you know, our own opinions and, and our own influences. And, and one of the things I love is, is Jesus mentions in Luke 10, the two most important commands are to love God with all your heart, all your mind, with all your soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And I remember the Jewish lawyer asking him in response, who's my neighbor? And why would he ask that? And, and, and a part of me feels like he, he wanted to pick who he loved. And, and Jesus, in this powerful parable, tells the story of the Good Samaritan. The Jewish man gets injured on the side of the road. And after being jumped by thieves, and a priest passes but looks the other way. I mean, come on, man. A pastor, of all yeah. people, looks the other way. Then the Levite passes, but looks the other way. Then we see a Samaritan who goes straight to him, cares for his wounds, and pays for him to recover inside an inn. And in Samaritans back in that in those days, and Jewish people, they physically looked very different. And and so we see someone who looked very different from this hurt man was the one who came to his aid. And, and I feel like the church has a tendency to look away from the stripped bleeding, hurt, and disenfranchised, really, we, we tend to look away when it gets very ugly. But the reality is the silence is abuse. So what if that silence is addressed? What can a white individual or a white family do practically once they recognize that they might have some racism embedded within them, like I did, and the Holy Spirit says, no more? What can they practically do? Well, I think um, you ever hear the whole the 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 old saying, um, "Be careful what you pray for." Like if you you know if you, those times where you pray for strength and and all of a sudden you're in situations that just touch you touch test you or you pray and ask exactly yeah God give me some patience and then you're stuck in traffic for like an hour and a half and you're you know you're you're so life. To, <laughs> yeah, exactly but I think this is one of those situations where. You know, I would first start and, and ask the Holy Spirit to give you opportunities to to get rid of that. And what you'll probably find is you'll be placed in situations that, that completely challenge every fabric of hidden racism that you have. And you'll notice a lot of things come up to the surface, and that'll be the Holy Spirit's way of kind of showing you and revealing to you the areas that you need to fix and need to get rid of. And this exists for everybody, even, you know, if I can speak to just strictly the African-American or the, or the minority listeners that you have, doesn't even have to be African-American, but even us, those of us who are not in the majority, we have to challenge ourselves because there's those years of trauma and abuse can, if we're not careful, can turn into bitterness that then turns itself into hating people who are in the majority culture. And that's not godly either. And so I think all of us have work to do in 
and it starts by asking the Holy Spirit and going, hey, you know, it's it's a, it's a reflection of, of David in Psalms uh, that where he, where he cries out and says, well, you know, uh, search me and know my heart, search me and know my ways, see if there would be any wicked way within me, you know, like, and asking, literally asking the Holy Spirit to do that and put us in situations that challenge. And I would say, be careful what you pray for, but that's that's the first practical thing. Once you're in those situations, I think, and you're more aware of exactly where your blind areas or your weak areas are, actively doing that. If For some people, that might mean turning off the networks that you listen to that have perpetuated the belief that you have. Some people need to turn off Fox News and just don't watch it for three months. Mm-hmm. Some people need to turn off CNN. As I, as I say that, just so I don't sound like a hypocrite, I did that actively about two months ago. I just turned off all networks because I was, and I, you know, I was fairly good. Like I would listen to both networks and get ticked off at both sides. And, but I, I just turned that off. Like I just turned off the junk. And so some people that might be a, a practical thing, just turn off whatever political thing that you're doing. If you're one of those people that automatically jump to like, Oh, this is going to be a political discussion. Stop listening to like turn off cable news network for a month. Just turn it off. Don't put down the paper that you read, put down the things that you the podcast that you listen to, not listen to this one. Cause this is a great podcast. But if you're listening to like, you know, these partisan policies, like turn them off, like give your, just get away from that influence. And that'll first start to help you even more understand like the damage that maybe some of those things have been doing to your ability to be anti-racist. After you've done that, there are a number of very good, educated, well-educated minority authors that have written plenty of books. Go to Google and type in how to be anti-racist, type in black educated authors on race or something like all these things will pop up and actually spend some time listening to and reading and picking up a book and reading of other people's experiences. I think those of you that are actively listening to this podcast, uh, you're, you're doing the work. You're, you're, uh, you've hopefully opened up your mind enough to listen to this conversation and, and expand your horizons, immerse yourself in plenty of other voices and other people who've had different experiences than you have and listen to their stories while at the same time asking the Holy Spirit to, to breathe some empathy and compassion and understanding into, into you and watch what happens. I think those will slowly start to change your views a little bit. And ultimately ask God for, ask if you don't have a minority friend that you can have this type of conversation with, then ask God to bring you one and wait for that, that opportunity and take advantage of when that opportunity comes. That doesn't mean you rock up to somebody and go, Hey, can I, can you be my black friend? <laughs> like, no, that doesn't work that way. But, but I think uh, a lot of things can, a lot of change and understanding can come within the context of authentic relationships. And in order to have authentic relationships, you got to have shared experiences with people. And so a shared experience might be you, you, you know, you go on a trip together with somebody or you invite somebody, you know, how about doing the old fashioned thing and inviting somebody over to dinner? I mean, or, you know, it's COVID. You might want to go outside to a park, <laughs> you know, to be COVID safe, but like doing something where you have a shared experience together, that's how you develop authentic relationships. And when you have those authentic relationships, that's when you can have these type of conversations that help shape and change your perspective. That's good. Some of the books that I have read for our our listeners to know that have really helped me out as a white male. Uh, one is The Color Compromise yeah. um, is a very good one. Be the Bridge by, I believe it's Latasha Morrison's very good. And then also Woke Church by Eric Mason's very good as well. 
Um, so I definitely recommend all three of those. But, you know, I, I really like what you said about, you know, just kind of just unplugging. And, and, and that's a whole other topic that we could dive into someday of, of what's speaking into your life. Mm. You know, but I can remember my great grandfather. He watched CNN all the time. That's all he ever watched. That and the Cubs games. He would watch the uh, Chicago Cubs play on WGN and then he would watch CNN. And when he passed away, he had one of those big screen box type tube TVs. The CNN logo was burned on the screen because he oh, watched wow. it so much. We, we couldn't even sell or give the TV away. And so I think that's just a great example, too, of what you're saying is, is what are we allowing to speak into our lives? Are, are we allowing media? Are we allowing popular culture? Are, or are we allowing the Holy Spirit to speak into our lives? And so I think I think that's really good. So we're going to wrap up here. I just have one more quick question for you. Sure. I, I really want to end this on a positive note. What's one cool story that might inspire others to change? So, man, yeah, I'll, I'll go ahead and say this and, and uh, I'll share this story. I have no idea whether this person is going to be listening to this or not, but I have, uh, I have one individual who I was, I don't even, I mean, I couldn't say maybe an acquaintance in high school. And always kind of admired this guy from from afar because he he basically his his career path was what I wanted to do before God called me into ministry. I'll just say this because if I say too much more, it's going to reveal who this person is. And so this particular individual loves to troll on my Facebook wall and would say all sorts of just really, I mean, downright just very political stuff. But whenever an issue of race came up, very borderline or sometimes outright racist stuff over time. And just most of my, my Facebook friends despise this individual and despise is putting it nicely. But I just, I'm one of those people and granted I've heard all the things I'm very good on boundaries. Like I, there's a lot of people that I, that I've unfriended over the years on Facebook just because of maintaining a personal boundary, not because I didn't like their politics or didn't like what they had to say. I'm just, I'm not going to put up with blatantly racist stuff for things like that. Anyway, but I actively said in my mind that I'm going to build a bridge. I, I think if, if we can hate people that we don't even know, we can love people that we don't really know that well. And so recognizing that I knew this person from back in the day, but like we weren't close friends or anything like that. I, I set out and said, I'm going to intentionally going to befriend this person. Much to the dislike and shocking amazement of most of my friends that kept on wondering when I was going to get rid of this individual and block him out of my life. I continue to build a friendship and build a friendship and build a friendship. And it's been a blessing, uh, honestly, over time. This person still likes to troll from time to time, but for every troll, I get a personal text message and we, we, have, we have a good conversation. And, and so these type of things are still possible. I think it's still possible to vehemently disagree with somebody, but still at the end of the day, choose to love them and treat them like human beings. There's a guy, look up on a, look up on YouTube sometime. There was a guy who befriended a KKK member and over time led, I think it's like over 40 people out, out of the KKK just through the power of personal relationship. And it just started off with like that person going into and going into a room and saying, all right, man, like why, tell me why you hate me. Like what, what did I do to you? And and having that type of that that type of thing, but again, I think if there's anything that I want to stress to to your to your listeners, it's the again the power of authentic relationship. And you have a shared experience with somebody, 
you you can build an authentic relationship and you can overcome a lot of issues. And it doesn't mean that you're going to see eye to eye on politics. It doesn't mean you're going to see eye to eye even on the issue of racism. There's still going to be racist things that exist. But I, when it comes down to it, is I still believe that that love trumps everything. And I'm going to use that word intentionally. <laughs> love trumps everything. And so when you can build authentic relationships based off of love and ultimately for Christ followers, love that comes not from us because we're flawed, but love that comes from the father, some pretty cool relationships can be built despite the, the differences and issues. And I'm, I'm living testament to that because I've intentionally done that through a lot of crap to say the least. And so, yeah, I, I, I recently reconnected with this individual in person and had a good time talking and just, you know, it, it's a true friendship. And so it is possible to truly love your enemies and have them move from enemies to friends if you're intentional about it. And I think those of us who are Christ followers should be the, at the front of the line in practicing this because if we as people who follow Christ can't do that, then are we expecting the world to do it? Because that's not going to happen. So that's a challenge. So good. Life change happens in the context of community. Man, that is so good. Keith, I just want to thank you so much for your time today to dive into a topic that I've never been, you know, very much aware on. And, you know, I know that my awareness of this has certainly expanded today. And I, and I pray that our listeners awareness has expanded as well. And man, I just want to thank you for your friendship. I want to thank you for your honesty and your transparency and talking on a subject that's pretty awkward to most people, but what I imagine is pretty sensitive to you. So thank you so much for being a walking, breathing, living, talking vessel of how we can really be advocates for justice, to really seek justice, just as Christ seeks justice. And so um, I pray that we are empowered, that we would live as kingdom people knowing that kingdom living isn't just about Holy Spirit. It isn't about just about Jesus and God. And, you know, of course, they're all very important, but it's really the matters of the heart, how God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit transform us and, and how they transform our thinking, but how they not only transform what we think, but what we do. And so thank you so much for that. And I would be honored, Keith, would you be willing to close this out in prayer? Great. Thank you so much. Sure. Yeah, definitely. And thanks again for the opportunity to, to be a part of this podcast. I, I, I'm, I'm quickly becoming a fan of it and what you're doing. It, it's uh, You're doing some awesome stuff here. And so thanks for having me and for being a guest. And for those of you that have been listening to this, thank you so much for opening your heart to, to, to maybe be challenged and pushed a little bit. And I pray that it is life-changing and transformational for you. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to have this conversation. Thank you so much for the people who are listening to this right now. Thank you for the work and the the change that you've been doing and that you've been stirring that I, that I trust and believe this has been happening through the work of your Holy spirit. God, I pray just as you prayed, your son, Jesus prayed the last prayer on earth was that your people, that Christians, um, people who proclaim Christ and follow Christ would be, would be one and that would be, be united. And God, we live in a very fractured world. We live in a very, we're in a time where the church itself is very fractured. And so we're not really doing a good job of this unity thing that you pray for. So God, I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would make us aware, make us very aware of what role we're playing in perpetuating the disunity that's in your church. And I pray that you would challenge us and motivate us to change what we can change 
God, we don't have control over anybody else. We have control over ourselves. And so, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would help us first know where we need to change and what we need to do to be better and to make an impact on the world because, God, the world's not going to do it. It has to start with us who believe in you. And so I pray that you give us that that spirit to do so, the willingness to do so, the boldness to do so, and may you empower us. We can pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Taste and See podcast. We hope that you were encouraged and empowered by our conversation today. For future and past episodes, please follow us on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. You can also follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash the Taste and See podcast. Now go, live for the kingdom, and always remember that the Lord is good.